The next set of cases was presented by Dr. Morgenstein to Dr. Leonard, beginning with a young man with follicular lymphoma. This is a 43-year-old gentleman. He's a big strapping guy who presented really with about five to six months of back pain and was worked up in every way possible. He had cardiac evaluations, gastrointestinal evaluations. Finally, he developed a weakness in his legs. He was unable to walk and had an MRI of his spine, which showed a large epidural mass. He had a fairly urgent neurosurgery with resection and stabilization of this area and was found to have a grade one follicular lymphoma. They came to see me. He didn't have any fevers, chills, any B symptoms. His examination and scans were fairly unremarkable except for a solitary lymph node in his groin. So he received radiation to the spine and tolerated that well. His neurologic symptoms improved. He underwent a lymph node biopsy of that groin, as well as a bone marrow biopsy. The bone marrow biopsy was negative. His lymph node biopsy showed the same grade one follicular lymphoma. So this is actually, he came here today for just a conversation about how do we proceed going forward. Now, this guy, who was, again, a young, strapping, healthy guy, is still somewhat debilitated by his surgery and now comes to decide what are we going to do about it. So we talked a little bit. My thoughts were that we should probably sit tight, watch and wait. I also gave him some information. We discussed rituxan monotherapy, and I certainly was not in favor of any more aggressive or intensive chemotherapy. We presented him at one of our tumor boards, and the conversation there kind of was quite interesting. It went from, you know, do nothing, give him rituxan, to some people actually wanted to give him pretty intensive chemotherapy and harvest his stem cells. I think it just goes to show you the kind of range of possibilities in these follicular lymphomas, particularly with a young person. So, John, what were you thinking about in this man? Well, I think, you know, in sitting and watching, and this was probably the case that we talked about that Neil was most on the spot because it was a, you know, very focused discussion on what to do about him to some degree, as opposed to many of the other patients which were, you know, they were in the middle of a plan and we just got to know them more. And I obviously spent a lot of time with follicular lymphoma patients and I didn't envy Neil, you know, having this discussion because these are the most complicated patients we talk about, particularly in a young patient, because there's no answer. And what struck me, which I think we all recognize in ourselves and we alluded to in some of the other cases today is how much you can sway a patient by what your feelings are. And, you know, yes, that's what you're there for, to give them an opinion. But as Neil alluded to, there are many reasonable opinions as to what to do for this patient. The data are quite limited, and it's obviously challenging to be objective to the patient and lay out the different options, but also recognize the limitations of the data. And to some degree, I kind of sense that he was definitely hoping, the patient was hoping for, you know, okay, I know I could do this or this or this, but what do you want me to do? And in fact, at one point, the question that patients often ask us, if I was your family member, what would I do? This patient said it. And I think sometimes patients with follicular lymphoma and other settings, they want to hear the options, but at the end of the day, tell me what to do, and I trust you, and I'll go forward. So that came out. So did he actually verbalize today the question of what Yes, he yeah, exactly. Wow. What did you two say? Well, you know, we get that question a lot, and I try to honestly answer the question. And if it was me, if it was one of my family members, I would give them the same recommendation, which is sit tight and follow them closely. How about you, John? Well, I always laugh at that question because, I mean, I don't laugh, you know, in front of the page. It's a perfectly understandable question, but 
you know, I mean, I think we all try to treat patients in the best way possible as if they were a family member. It's not like we have some great treatment that we're saving for our family <laughs> so that if you were my family, I'd give you the good stuff. But <laughs> but for you, I'll just give you the thing I don't think so great. But at the end of the day, yeah, I agree with Neil again. You know, it came out during the day that in many ways we're relatively conservative in how we treat people. I think one of the most valuable things of treating patients with indolent or variable lymphomas is to get some time under your belt so you can get a feel for what the disease is doing. And, you know, this guy clearly came in, you know, not sick, but with an acute problem in his back that needed to be dealt with. And Neil has basically one point in time to know what this disease is doing. And I think a period of watching for a while. And again, you can give him any of the things you want to give him in three months or in three years, but getting a little time under your belt so you can get a feel for what this disease is doing. If it doesn't change much in three or four months, you'd be comfortable doing nothing or doing something minimal. And if it changes a lot, then you're going to obviously treat him more aggressively. And plus this patient also is kind of in the post radiation post-op period, the dust is kind of settling. He's got a lot going on in his life and adjusting to this. And so, you know, letting the dust settle a little bit, I think has some value. And I think that's certainly something he expressed once Neil expressed that opinion, which again, I concur with. He was happy to kind of take a break from all this and kind of get back on his feet with getting back to work and things like that. Neil, what's his lifestyle and life situation? Well, it's interesting. He's married. He doesn't have kids. So that was a conversation on one of our first or second visits before I really knew how this was all going to play out as far as his staging, you know, whether he wanted children, what his plans were. And he certainly wants children, which brought up another reason against chemotherapies. And at this point, I think that's fine and reasonable. I mean, these are, again, the conversations you have sometimes, you know, people ask you, can I have a kid? What's my life expectancy? We didn't go into that much detail, but those were the conversations that we touched upon, particularly on our first visit. I don't know, Ben DeMustine or any of these, do we know anything about fertility? I think that, you know, there are probably some German data on it, and I don't know that I can intelligently give a data-driven answer, but my guess is it's an alkylating agent. It probably has some impact on fertility, and it might not be a bad idea to sperm bank him at some point, just in case you get into a jam and need to treat him quickly, that you don't have to worry about that issue down the line and thinking about it. Any other comments on bendamustine in general, and also the presentation from Ash in December of bendamustine R versus CHOP-R in indolent lymphoma? So many people, I'm sure, are familiar with bendamustine at this point. It's a drug that's been around since the 60s in Germany. It has some features of an alkylating agent, some of a purine analog. So some would argue that it's similar to those classes of drugs and not that different. However, clinically, it seems to be a pretty interesting and exciting drug. It was first, at least in the U.S., assessed in relapsed indolent lymphomas primarily, it went on to be approved in rituximab refractory follicular lymphoma, where it had about an 80% response rate and a time to progression of about nine months or so. These are obviously the less favorable group because they're refractory to rituximab. There have since been studies in CLL. There have since been studies in mantle cell lymphoma in the relapse setting. And then the big kind of buzz was at ASH 2009, the randomized trial presented by Rummel and colleagues that randomized patients to R-CHOP versus R-Bendamustine, predominantly follicular lymphoma, but also included other indolent lymphomas as well as mantle cell lymphoma. 
And the gist of that study was that bendamustine rituximab seemed to be better than RCHOP in progression-free survival and also seemed to be better tolerated, particularly less infections, less cytopenias, and less alopecia. And so, you know, I think we're still waiting for those data to mature a bit, but here and there, I think people are moving toward using bendamustine upfront in some settings. Certainly, occasionally we're seeing it in CLL, some patients with follicular lymphoma as an alternative to RCHOP or to RCVP in patients where you're less concerned about transformation is where I'm at least thinking about it, as well as some of the older patients with mantle cell lymphoma. And in fact, there, it seems to be potentially as good, if not better than RCHOP with less toxicity. John, has the Rummel-ASH data affected the way the trials that are out there, the control arm of trials? I mean, are people rethinking whether it should be RCHOP or, for example, Arbenda? So I think it is certainly a reasonable thing to keep in mind, although we haven't seen the full study, the published data, et cetera. You know, you can get hung up on that or not. I think that the questions that I have with bendamustine really relate to long-term marrow toxicity. And so where I'm a little more cautious about using it is in patients that are younger, where down the line I may want to give them stem cell transplant, I may want to give them radioimmunotherapy. The data that we have so far, and there have been some reports of stem cell collections that look just fine, but remembering this is an alkylating agent, it is myelosuppressive. I think, you know, in very young patients, I'm a little bit, you know, that's a concern in the back of my mind. That being said, it seems to me like it's getting harder and harder to justify using CVP and RCHOP in patients with mantle cell lymphoma. And in fact, the cooperative group studies that are coming along are looking at bendamustine-containing arms in some cases as part of the upfront therapy. So I think the good thing is we have other options. The bad thing is it does make the control arm for clinical trials more challenging because if you use a CHOP as your control arm, the question is going to be, well, what if you would use bendamustine as the comparison? So it does make it complicated, which things are getting more and more complicated as we get all these new therapies for each subtype of lymphoma that we're talking about today.